If Americans can broadly agree on nothing else, we should be able to agree that much of the bitterness and political tribalism that drives our public discussions is unhealthy for our country. Our objective, the Cato Institute and the Brookings Institution, is to establish a gold standard for the public discussion of policy issues. Welcome to Sphere. Concerns about uh, inequality pervade our uh, sort of cultural landscape right now, and a lot of politicians have tried to to make hay with uh, concerns about inequality. And before we get started, I guess I want to start with uh, understanding what it is that we're talking about. Uh, Mike Tanner, when we talk about inequality, at least in in popular terms, and I've seen a lot of videos on the internet uh, making claims about how terrible uh, inequality is. What do those people mean? Are they talking about income inequality? Are they talking about wealth inequality? Or are they talking about something else? Well, often they're conflating many different topics here. I mean, there is the difference between sort of economic inequality and political inequality and judicial inequality and lots of these things, and they go sort of get conflated together. I think we should all agree that we think that inequality and in treat of how you're treated in terms of justice uh, is wrong. Uh, I think that political inequality is something that leads to other types of inequality, and we certainly should be uh, aware of that and, and deal with that. But when you get to economic inequality, then it becomes uh, a, a very different issue and one that's much more divisive. And here they often, again, conflate different types of things. There's income inequality, which is sort of how much different people earn over the course of a year, and sort of wealth inequality, the accumulation of wealth and how that that sits. And often they sort of mix those two uh, topics together. And we really need to kind of divide them out one at a time in terms of, of our, both our answers and in terms of how concerned we are about it. To you then, Jonathan Rausch, when we talk about in, uh, economic inequality, uh, is there one that concerns you more than the other that is wealth versus income? Well, they're, they're both related in terms of people's perception. But as you'll hear, I've undergone something of a transformation in my view of inequality. And the way I think about it now is, is economic status inequality. It's people's sense of where they stand relative to others in the totem pole of economic rewards and social rewards. And that's a combination of things. That's income, it's wealth, it's also how much are you consuming, what are the people around you consuming. So that's kind of the way I like to think of it because status is, I think, what is getting large numbers of Americans pretty upset at the moment. Okay, so with this idea of economic status inequality, that would seem to implicate things broader than just uh, income, wealth, and consumption. It also may be cultural to some extent. Some elements of that, as Charles Murray pointed out, we used to mix um, people of different incomes at places like the bowling alley or maybe the barber shop. That happens less and less. So you've got a lot of things going on here, which I hope we'll have some time to unpack. But the bottom line of my big change is, I used to say, as, as I think many people did, that 
we should target as a matter of policy, we should care about poverty, but not inequality. If everyone's getting wealthier, but some people are getting wealthier faster than others, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. What you want is for people not to be poor. I've changed my view on that. I think rising inequality, when it relates to status and how people perceive their role in American society is actually immiserating and destabilizing. And like it or not, it needs to be a policy target. And that's a big change for me. Okay. Uh, Michael Tanner, to you, uh, I saw you nodding your head there in terms of how people uh, mix it up with respect to people of different uh, economic statuses uh, within the United States. How big of a problem is that? The fact that uh, you know, as Charles Murray uh, has pointed out many times, there are there is this sort of cleaving of uh, economic statuses within the United States. So, should we be concerned about that? Uh, yes, I definitely think we need to look at that. That that sort of mobility uh, that stemmed from those interactions is largely gone. Uh, marriage, for example, used to be between largely between people of different economic classes uh, to a much greater degree than they are today. Today, professionals marry professionals, blue collar workers marry blue collar workers, and that leads to a, to a bigger divide. But I also think there's a lot of problems uh, this, this ter- in terms of status inequality with what we see on TV. I mean, people often point to me that they say, well, you know, people in America aren't really poor. And, and that's true in sort of an absolute sense. There's very few people starving to death in this country or things like that. Uh, but, you know, they the same person who is sort of just barely making it turns on the TV and sees someone getting out of their Rolls Royce with their jewels and their mitts, uh, their furs and walking up the red carpet, stuff like that. And they and they feel a jealousy towards that, uh, that that may or may not be deserved. All right. So um, it seems like there's not there may not be a, a clear policy that we ought to aim for to deal with the broad problem of economic status inequality. But Jonathan, do you agree with that? Well, as I said a minute ago, I have come to the reluctant conclusion that inequality does need to be a policy target. Um, The thing about status inequality, though, is it's a subjective variable, right? You can have an income of $50,000 and feel really rich in some places and really poor in other places, depending on who you're comparing yourself with. So the variable we're talking about here is one that's heavily subjected and inflected by what you see around you. So the kinds of measures I wind up thinking about in dealing with status inequality have less to do with the alleviation of poverty per se and sending people checks, although there does need to be some of that. And I would say there needs to be more of that. But it has more to do with reinforcing the other ways in society that we give people stories about having a dignified life where they're included in society, they can earn a good living, they have standing in the community, they feel like breadwinners. And that gets beyond check writing. That gets to figuring out how to strengthen and restore things like civic institutions and unions and maybe churches. We're talking about civil society as well as the traditional economic means. But what I've also concluded is we keep going the way we're going, where more and more people just feel disaffected and lack a sense of agency over their lives, a sense of dignity about their economic standing. 
our politics are going to get more and more destructive of a lot of the things that we cherish. So that's that's something I do want to get into. Uh, uh, to you, Mike, though, l- let's let's boil down a little bit in terms of as a as a moral obligation uh, that you or I might uh, feel or uh, be shown that we ought to feel about uh, our responsibility to others with respect to uh, their economic either status or income or wealth, is there a moral case to be made that uh, either income or wealth inequality is something that needs to be addressed with public policy? Well, I I think in terms of public policy, the goal of public policy should be uh, human flourishing. I mean, that is ultimately why we pursue various policies is we want people to be able to thrive. And that thriving includes the ability to rise as far as your individual talents will take you. It includes an ability to become all that you can be. And to the degree that that's not possible in society, that I think we need to be care- intervene with. And, and that largely is a question, I think, of poverty, not of, not of inequality. But I also think we need to give people hope. And, and that is uh, a little bit where I agree with Jonathan, is that I think we've lost that sense of opportunity in this country where people don't see themselves able to rise. I can remember, and perhaps I'm dating myself how old I was, back to the old Jack Kemp days. And Jack Kemp used to talk about when he went into the the poor districts in his neighborhood, nobody really wanted to take things away from the rich. They wanted to become rich. And I don't think people out there today see themselves as rising up that, that chain. Uh, it's, it's still possible. And in fact, as many people are likely to end up, who are born poor, are likely to end up rich as to end up being poor uh, at the end of their life or at some point over their life. Uh, but I, but I think that people don't see that sense of opportunity and that is something where we need to be looking at in terms of policy. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, do you, do I sense disagreement on that point? You know, I tend not to think about this morally, Caleb. Um, well, I, I understand I were... that there are there. Are, I understand that there are practical objections, but do you do you believe that there is a there's a moral claim that through uh, the actions of of government ought to be expressed in turn to alleviate these problems as a, as a moral question? So, on Planet Vulcan, when I think about inequality abstractly and say, is there anything morally wrong with me getting 10% richer, but you getting 30% richer? I think the answer is no. I don't think there's anything morally wrong about that. Um, But I've also come to think that that conversation is a dead end because it doesn't deal with the realities of human nature. And if we care about the things that, for example, James Madison cared about, which is having a dynamic but also stable society, we actually have to set aside the moral question about inequality and start talking about, okay, how do we run a society that seems to people fair enough to be stable? So that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, Mike Tanner, when my wife and I, uh, we recently purchased a home or at least a portion of a home, um, we uh, had to present a bunch of numbers to some people. And those numbers uh essentially dictated what kind of neighborhood we could live in and what kind of house we could buy and what and to uh, another extent uh, what kind of schools our kids uh, would attend if uh, if they attended public schools in in the area so uh, when people think about their own 
uh, economic status, when they think about uh, their ability to get ahead, uh, it seems like there are some pretty big private sector uh, hurdles that are that stand in the way. And if you're not playing someone else's game, your ability to succeed is pretty sharply limited. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think the question is whether or not that's a private sector failing or a failing of government in, in many of these cases. For example, much of the cost of your house is due to zoning regulations and land use regulations and fees that are imposed by the local government. Those are often deliberately designed to keep low-income people out of your neighborhood or people of color out of your neighborhood. Uh, basically, a lot of these laws date back to the redlining that went on, uh, which was official government policy and still sort of exists uh, de facto uh, in many of these communities. And I think those are the types of things we do need to look at. There should be more multifamily housing in your area that's low that people can afford that's not necessarily... Uh, the cost of a cost of a single family housing. The fact that we look and look at places like California and find that is more than two thirds, as much as three quarters, in fact, and in some cities, ninety percent of the land is zoned for single family only uh, housing. Uh, that sort of thing is is a great increaser of inequality. All right, Jonathan Rausch, uh, what about the uh, impediments that that people see to having what they want that are essentially just boil down to a number. It's it's a big issue. There's a new phrase that's come along in the last few years, opportunity hoarding. My Brookings Institution colleague, Richard Reeves, wrote a, wrote a whole book about this. So we thought things like meritocracy and SAT and other measures, objective measures of ability and merit were a fairer way to sort society than who your parents were, what color you were, and we were right. What we kind of missed is that a couple of generations of this kind of sorting means you get a stratum of people like, frankly, me, who are really good at test taking, who went to the right schools. Kids will go to the right schools. They'll get the tutoring. They'll get the opportunities. And it turns out this class is pretty good at locking in the opportunities they've received. So after a period of time, the meritocracy begins to harden. And other people who don't have the same prospects for college, don't live in the right places, can't afford the tutors, um, don't get into the, you know, the right preschool to get into the right grade school. Those people look around and say, wait a minute, this doesn't look fair. And they're right. So now we got to kind of figure out how to back ourselves out of that corner. All right. Mike Tanner, what do you think of that? The, the yeah, idea I'm... that these opportunities sort of are, that creates a sort of path dependence that uh, over generations means that some people are effectively shut out of having the kinds of opportunities that other people have. Well, I think I agree with that to a large extent. I would not use the term opportunity hoarding because that sort of implies a fixed pie of opportunity that you can't expand. I mean, I, I think we could create more opportunities without taking opportunities away from anyone. That said, we should recognize that uh, that we've basically destroyed or stolen huge amounts of potential wealth from the African-American community that you're largely uh, your your college prospects depend on your zip code which can depend a lot on as we as I just mentioned zoning and things of that nature that uh, that how we treated your parents or grandparents uh, has an impact on your prospects today 
that we we don't start with a blank slate and the idea that we you know that somebody we're going to have a 10 lap race and for nine laps you've been weighted down with weights and chains and everything and then the last lap we take those chains off and we say see everything is equal and fair that's kind of nonsense uh and i and i think far too many people on the free market side do that that said uh, you know i i think we have to be very careful that we don't start setting up so some sort of arbitrary process where we're going to allocate opportunity uh, sort of, uh, sort of on some sort of basis that we're wise philosopher, economist kings, and we all can know all the decisions that should be made from this point going forward. All right. So, uh, to Jonathan's point about uh, Planet Vulcan, uh, will we should remember that Mr. Spock, in fact, was half Vulcan uh, uh, and half human. So, what is the uh, uh, what's the middle point there then? If if as a as a moral uh, question we shouldn't worry about inequality of wealth or income, uh, but we should worry about the, the kinds of opportunities that uh, we want everyone to have access to and to be able, uh, if they so choose, uh, succeed at those opportunities. I think we need to look at what are the barriers to those opportunities right now. I'm far less interested in redistribution uh, of existing wealth because you can't, one thing, you can't redistribute things that don't exist. And if you create a set of disincentives to entrepreneurship, to risk taking, to investment, you actually end up with a poorer society overall. Uh, it may be more equal, but, uh, but I don't think it's one that we actually want. Uh, you know, I, I, in fact, when the stock market crashed at the beginning of the, of the COVID epidemic, uh, we wiped out um, you know, hundreds of millionaires, lost their wealth. We became more wealthy as a society or more equal as a society overall. I don't think anybody was cheering it on, saying, oh, boy, let's crash the economy so we can all be equal. Uh, I think we want to have economic growth. And we need to be careful of that. That said, we need to look very carefully at things like our educational system, our criminal justice system, uh, housing regulations, banking regulations, and, and things that get in the way, like occupational licensing, things of that nature that get in the way of people participating in a growing economy. Uh, Jonathan, what I hear Mike saying is that there are government impediments to a lot of people taking advantage of opportunities. Uh, there are probably some people, uh, if all these impediments went away, simply would not. And, and some of that may be cultural as well. Uh, but you know, what do you make of the, the regulatory changes as a matter of sort of hard policy to uh, get us to a better state than than we are right now with respect to, uh, as, as you put it, economic status? The policy conversation is a long and difficult conversation because there's so many different moving parts and pieces. I agree with Michael that where there are imposed pediments, impediments, I should say, to opportunity, that it's a good thing to address those and remove those. Where I think I may disagree with some of my libertarian friends is I don't think that's enough. I think there is a view in some circles that if all the government does is stop iniquitous zoning regulations and silly licensing requirements, that then everybody kind of floats up and you address these inequalities. It seems clear to me now that most of the inequality that we're seeing, status inequality uh, and income inequality, is market-driven. It seems to be a reward for technology changes that 
it's been called a winner-take-all economy. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but it looks like the big technological breakthroughs of the last few years have many, many upsides, and we can all be grateful to Steve Jobs for those. But they also seem to have a downside, which is concentration of the rewards of those technologies disproportionately at the top. And not only at the top, this is kind of an important point. And if you'll give me just a second to expound on it, it, it helps understand how I think about this. And then we can turn to policy. So imagine a ladder and human beings are on that ladder. And that ladder is status, primarily economic status. So there's some things we know now about how people think about status. One is it's always relative. They're not comparing themselves with some absolute number. They're looking at the people around them. The second thing is, weirdly, but this has been confirmed in actual experiments, people compare upwards, not downwards. So if I get a lot wealthier than the people around me, that will make me somewhat happier, um, but it won't make me nearly as unhappy as it does the people below me because they're comparing upward. They're looking up the ladder at the next rung much more than they're looking down the ladder and saying, wow, I'm further from the guy behind me. I feel great about that. They're saying, I'm further from the guy above me. I feel terrible about that. Well, if you think about that, if you get a society in which the ladder is stretched from bottom to top, all the way, all the rungs are getting further apart. And that means at every level of that society, the people looking up the ladder at the next rung are looking at a bigger gap to get to the next rung. So this is not just about the 1% at the very top. It's not just too many billionaires. It's everybody along the ladder looking up and thinking, wow, the next rung is getting further and further out of reach. I really resent that. And then if you go to them and say, well, you should be grateful because you're doing so much better off than you were 20 years ago, or you should be happy because a billion Chinese are out of poverty, they're not interested in that. They're looking up the ladder. So when you get to policy, you've got to think of ways to help people climb that ladder. And you've also got to think of ways to ameliorate what the economy is doing. Uh, to you, Mike, how much of this is uh, education and the, the paths that so many young people, I remember being in high school and being told, go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. Well, I think it is education. Let's, let's start with that, that there's no more important route out of poverty, I think, than education. Uh, you can go all the way back uh, you know, to Brown versus Board of Education and the findings in that, that being getting a good education uh, made a big difference your entire life and, and failing to get a good education uh, left you behind your entire life, led to greater inequality. So I think that that's a huge part of it. But that's not necessarily the same thing as college. I do think we need uh, more in terms of apprenticeship programs, although solving the problem of the runaway apprentice, uh, the idea that people can take advantage of an apprenticeship program and then go work for someone else uh, leaves, a, leaves, a, leaves a gap there. Uh, I do think we need more trade schools, more vocational education. Uh, College is not necessarily the best investment for everybody, uh, particularly the elite schools uh, that people put in. Uh, it costs a great deal and don't necessarily yield uh, as much over a lifetime. I think the, uh, the data on that's pretty mixed. Jonathan, you mentioned how people compare up, not down, with respect to their own uh, levels of wealth, their levels of income, the niceness of their homes, perhaps even the sumptuousness of their meals. 
Uh, what do we know about that empirically? Well, there's some empirical work, Caleb, which does not reflect wonderfully on human nature, but we've got to reckon with it. The first was a randomized controlled trial. That's the gold standard of, of social experiments that was done in Kenya, where some nonprofits chose some random people in some villages and just gave them cash windfalls of $400 to about $1,500, which is a huge amount of money in that context. And then they looked at what happened to the happiness of those people, the well-being of those people and the people around them. And what they discovered is, as you would expect, the people who got the windfalls felt happier. But by a ratio of about four to one, people who did not get the windfall felt less happy because they suddenly saw their status plunge relative to these lucky ducks around them. And so the whole society became less unhappy because some people got better off. Less happy. Less happy, right. The effects tended to wear off after about a year. So that's the good news. <laughs> a second, even funnier one. In 2001, Norway decided to make all the tax records transparent. So you could go online and you could look up the incomes of the people in your peer group. Well, once people started to do that, they did it a lot. They were doing this a fifth as much as they were on, as the whole country was on YouTube. And the happiness of people in, the, in Norway, uh, satisfaction, dropped 21 to 29 percent. So it's now, this, is, this is overall life satisfaction? Yeah, this is like, well, 21 percent is one measure and 29 percent is another. But yeah, this is okay. life satisfaction. This is how good do they feel about their lives. So this is a natural experiment, and there are certain controls that were done by the researchers. But once people were able to compare themselves with others, they're looking up the ladder. They're saying, oh my gosh, I'm Jones next door is making that much. I'm only making this much. Norway finally brought this under control by making also transparent who was snooping into whose tax record. So I can now go online and find out if you're looking at my income. That reduced this behavior. But what both of these things tell you is that the human animal is wired in such a way we are walking, talking status meters. We're comparing ourselves all the time. So we have to find ways to structure society to make those comparisons less painful. Well, I, I, let me just on the Kenyan example, I think a certain amount of that is contributed by the fact that these people who got the windfall didn't do anything to merit the windfall. It was luck. And I think people do have a greater resentment of that than if they feel the person did something to benefit the village and then as a result of that got a reward for it, uh, that there's somehow these people earned their, their keep. And I think we do feel a lot of the people getting rich today are getting rich because they've got government connections or because they've somehow gamed the system. And I think that's, that's a little bit different. Uh, as far as our sort of capacity for envy overall, we envy lots of things. It's not just financial. I mean, you know, the, the, you know when you're young, you envy the guy who's got the prettier girlfriend or the uh, the sports star who got a letter on his jacket and you didn't. Or any, it, you can find all sorts of things to to be envious of. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a, a, an impulse that we want to indulge. The final question is, you know, how do you wipe out inequality in a society? I'm, I'm reminded of the, the Kurt Vonnegut story, uh, Harrison Bergeron, uh, where in a society, 
in order to make sure everyone was equal, that if you were too good looking, they made you wear a mask. And if you were too smart, they put on earphones on you that blasted white noise at you so you couldn't think uh, as clearly. And if you were an athlete, they weighted you down with a ball and chain so that you couldn't run as fast. And, And the idea was to ensure that everybody was equal in that society. I mean, you know, that's, you know, obviously an exaggerated point of view, but it, but ultimately we don't want to be in a society in which we wipe out the idea of risk taking and investment and entrepreneurship and striving to get ahead because we because we want to indulge the fact that people below us might be envious of us. Go ahead, John. Mike, here's where I think you and I begin to part ways. I think there's been a tendency, especially in free market circles, to say well, you don't want to have a society that's undynamic and you don't want to level down. So apart from removing government obstacles to opportunity, we're kind of done. So we'll have to master our envy has been kind of the way market thinkers have, free market thinkers have gone. I think that's insufficient. And I also think that modern, newer thinking is emerging about ways to address this that are not leveling down. I agree with you that just writing checks to people, targeting one variable, say income, or another variable, say wealth, or even a narrow, narrower variable like housing, doesn't really help because it's a multifaceted problem. But I think what does need to happen is change the civic context around the inequality so people don't feel as buffered by it, so they have other ways to feel connected and valuable. What you said earlier about fairness is exactly right. People resent inequality much less if they feel society is fair, if they feel that they can get ahead, uh, and if they feel connected, if they feel a sense of agency. So that's why I think a project of civic rebuilding and some government piece of that, for example, um, changing the laws around unions so that they can be more helpful, why I think that piece has become essential. Mike, uh, can policy do that? Well, uh, to some degree, policy can do that, but it's mostly in terms of relieving barriers. Then uh, this is is an area where I think Jonathan and I probably disagree. I, I would place much more emphasis on that. Government is not very efficient at recognizing people's individual needs, uh, intervening in their psyche, if you will, and, and it doesn't have the subtlety for that. Government's good at big things that get to blow up. I mean, you know, it's building a road or dropping a bomb on somebody. I mean, government does those things reasonably well. You can dispute the policy behind those things, but but they're relatively efficient at that or at mailing out a million checks like social security. They can do that fairly efficiently. The idea that they're going to dig into each individual's person and, and find out what they need to be connected to society and then provide that, I, I, I don't see them being able to do that. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a big role for civil society and the fact that we've sort of shut out a lot of civil society and the, the things that used to make us feel part of the community, those, that's, a, that's a big problem. But that, again, is part of turning to government. I mean, the two things that I'm reminded of is, the, is Charles Murray, uh, who I have a lot of disagreements with, but he did point out you can't have a viable community if it don't give it something to do. And it used to be that once upon a time, if there was a disaster in your community, let's say uh, there was a hurricane or something, the, the churches would get together and say, give to it hurts, dig down and put money in the collection, complain. we're all in this together. Now they say, write your congressman. And, and that to me is not going to build that sort of civic engagement. 
Jonathan, um, to the extent that a lot of the institutional rebuilding, the civic uh, institutions that need to be rebuilt, how much of government getting out of the way helps uh, enable that kind of rebuilding that we might like to see. I can remember uh, David Beto, who wrote an excellent book uh, from Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, detailing uh, how Black Americans got together, formed their own medical associations, and really uh, had a robust set of institutions that were, by and large, uh, private, in fact, distinct from uh, government. I partially agree with Michael. Um, in as much as civic rebuilding, to the extent that's a key component, is primarily going to be a non-governmental effort, I think by definition. I think where we disagree, at least to some extent, is that the notion that if you simply remove so-called obstacles, um, society rebuilds automatically. The way I think of it is a little different, which is that you need to change policy. We're not going to not have policies, federal, state, local, around things like education and training, right? So it's not like we're just going to say, well, we'll, we'll stop having public schools. We'll stop certifying schools, accrediting teachers and universities. We just won't do that anymore. And then the market will take care of it. The fact is we're going to have policies. So to me, the right debate to be having, and the one that I would love to engage more of my free market friends is, in is, okay, Except that we're going to have a lot of policies, how can we reorient them in a direction that is more supportive of creating and, up, and, and upholding private sector institutions? A good example of that, which I alluded to earlier, is the laws around unions. They were framed in the 1930s for an industrial age that's completely different from ours. They're adversarial. They make it so that the last thing an employer wants to see on the premises is a union. Um, they make it impossible for unions to offer a lot of the services that they ought to be able to offer. They should be administering unemployment insurance. They should be training workers. They should be running apprenticeships programs. Unions give workers a sense of voice and a sense of agency. And so we need to actually change federal law in ways that make it possible for unions to do those things instead of impossible. Well, Mike, me, uh, yeah, actually, I consider myself uh, fairly pro-union, uh, particularly for a libertarian. But my concern is that unions are a reflection of that problem that I mentioned earlier in terms of organizations breaking down from a, from a civil contract, if you will, or from civil society. It used to be that unions were the, the intermediary between workers and management, and that's what they got involved in. Now they're increasingly a lobbying agency. They, they, rather than talk to management, they talk to government. And let's get government to pass a law to mandate what we can't negotiate with the, with the employer. So I, I think, you know, if they go back to the idea of what they were, which was the organizing of the workers to talk to management and the two were on equal basis and that's and they sort of would butt heads and come up with the solution to things, that is part of civic engagement to the degree that they are simply one more special interest at the trough of Washington. They're not. Uh as with all things, The Simpsons had a, a line that I think sums up a lot of what you guys are talking about. Uh, one character, while he's being dragged from a factory floor, uh, is yelling, one day we'll form a union and get the fair and equitable treatment we deserve. Then we'll go too far and get corrupt and shiftless and the Japanese will eat us alive. <laughs> any show, if I could only observe, Caleb, that, that any show which mentions both The Simpsons and Star Trek 
is operating at a very high intellectual level. I appreciate that. I want to shift uh, gears just a little bit, and I think we'll close with this. Um, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, who received the Nobel Prize in economics uh, years ago, he wrote a book called The Price of Inequality. Uh, in that book, he says, widely unequal societies do not function efficiently, and their economies are neither stable nor sustainable in the long term. Taken to its extreme, and this is where we are now, this trend distorts a country and its economy as much as the quick and easy revenues of the extractive industry distort oil or mineral-rich countries. And, and Jonathan, just respond to that. Well, I think he's largely right. It's It's easy to exaggerate the downsides of inequality. And we don't want to forget the dynamism that comes from it. We don't want to forget, as Michael pointed out earlier, that if people perceive society as fair, they imagine themselves rising through the ranks economically. And that makes inequality much more acceptable. But it does seem to be true. Evidence shows that in the United States, people, places, pardon me, with higher inequality have higher levels of stress and worry they have higher levels of political polarization, higher levels of social disconnect in this. And we can argue about which way the causality runs, but it's getting pretty hard to dispute that at certain levels, inequality makes it harder to live with each other and complicates a lot of other things. And I think we're seeing some of that in the populist nationalist uprising of the last few years. Um, the attacks on capitalism and corporations that we've seen on the left, the attacks on trade that we're seeing from everywhere, immigration. So that's why I urge my free market friends to start thinking about inequality as a, po as a policy target. And what I don't mean by that is writing checks to people to level society. I mean starting to think creatively about ways to make society better buffered against the kinds of inequality shocks that we now see the market is delivering. Uh, Michael Tanner, to you, you know, this is a practical ob objection to uh, allowing uh, inequality, income, wealth, or economic status to, to proceed uh, rampant, uh, even with uh, reductions in uh, government regulation that do tend to hold people back uh, economically. So what of that practical objection that uh, society may experience a political upheaval and not the one uh, libertarians might appreciate uh, if these things are continue unabated? Well, I think there's evidence, including uh, a couple of studies to suggest that there's a differentiation between the in terms of the causes of that inequality that the inequality that arises naturally from the market and from merit and from people taking risks and, and entrepreneurship, people are much more tolerant, I think, of, of that type of inequality. And that, and that leads to both economic growth and ultimately to stability. Uh, but I think there is a difference with sort of the crony capitalism that we see all too often, where it's government in bed with businesses, where the government bails out the big banks on Wall Street or builds up sports stadiums for millionaires or does you know is basically part of the equation you know protects favored industries with tariffs and things of that nature in which you you ultimately get not a, a vibrant free market but sort of a, how far you go depends on who you know and how you can lobby and how much money you had in the past and all those sorts of things that Jonathan mentions that is a recipe for inequality 
uh, and instability, rather. And, and I do think that people who believe in the free market have to make that differentiation. We're not necessarily pro-business, we're pro-market, and those are two different things. Gentlemen, I, th- I think we're done, but if you have any final thoughts uh, on this topic that you'd like uh, our audience to take away, uh, what might they be? Jonathan? My take, I think, would build on Michael's last point and maybe respond to it by saying that that we're in a different kind of world now. We're in a world where it's clear that the structure of markets is generating a lot of inequality and that simply removing cronyism and obstacles is not going to deal with the bulk of what's happening. And we're in a world where we're seeing that this market-driven inequality is having a lot of negative social and political effects. So the plea I want to end on is to think more creatively about this on the right. And to say that I'm encouraged, actually, there's there's a new group of center-right thinkers. Some of them are in Congress. Josh Hawley is one of them. Some are in think tanks. Warren Kerr is one of them, talking about what they're calling worker-based capitalism, which is a, a a version of thinking about the economy and government policy that puts the dignity of workers at the center of market-oriented thinking. This is something new, right? This is just not the way conservatives talked. And we're also seeing this on the center left at places like Brookings. People are thinking really hard about, okay, how can we change policy to give everybody more of a sense of agency and dignity, or at least to help the private sector do that? To me, that's the next great conversation about inequality. All right, uh, Michael, uh, many of the policy proposals that you've put forth here, Jonathan says, necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah, I, I think uh, I worry much more than Jonathan does about lack of economic growth. I, I don't see a point in our society in which I would like to freeze things and say, okay, things were more equal at, in, in such and such a year. Let's just keep things uh, there and not grow from there even if it leads to more inequality. And yes, markets do lead to inequality, but they do leave people better off in the end. And and I I don't want to lose that sense of dynamism along the way uh, by some sort of sort of glacial uh, you know locking people into the ice of, of a particular level because in order to preserve equality. The task of Sphere is to establish a gold standard for the public discussion of policy issues. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Talk to you again next time.